The lesson today is from the revelation of Jesus Christ given to his servant John, and I'll be reading from chapter 19, verses 6 through 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. When I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 10. We are coming to the end of our series on Revelation. I hope you have enjoyed it. Um, Our series has been called Revelation, a vision that we can all understand. There is a vision and a picture here that is not meant to confuse, but it is meant to clarify who indeed is in control of time and history, and also how evil and suffering is being dealt with and being woven in to this grand redemptive story told all throughout history from Genesis to Revelation and is being used in a way to bring God glory ultimately. That we can trust that even on our worst days, suffering through, like Frankie's sister, suffering through a car accident and being in a hospital, that there is a good God who can weave those things, even though He's not the author of it, He can weave those things and use those things for glorious purposes. That's the hope that Revelation gives us. And then in the end, He will one day make sure that there will be no more suffering or pain or sadness. That's the story that John is trying to tell us. And in recent weeks, we've seen, as we've studied the wrath of God, that He has decisively dealt with evil to heal a broken world, paving the way for a better city, a better kingdom. This is the hope of all Christianity. Revelation 19, 6-10 is the pinnacle of the book of Revelation. It's the climax. It's what we're all looking forward to. It's what all of history anticipates is this moment that John sees this vision for. So I hope this morning it encourages you. Uh, for those who are struggling in doubt are struggling in fear, who are suffering, just as it was meant for the original audience, that it either encourages you and lifts you up to places of hope, or that it wake you up from any apathy that you are feeling or complacency that you're experiencing in your faith. That's what John's vision is meant to do. So with that in mind, let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, no matter where we come from on the spectrum of our faith this morning, we pray for revival. We pray that your Spirit would awaken us 
to see the reality of this life, that there is someone in control, that there is not just someone who has created all things, but who is benevolent and good and charitable and hospitable towards us, who, Lord, you reveal yourself to us as Father. You reveal Jesus to us as our elder brother. You you reveal the Holy Spirit as our helper. Help us this morning for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So, thus far we've seen what God's wrath is like. It's His determined focus on eradicating all that is evil and unholy to pave the way for this, His love to be fully poured out on those whom He loves and for them to enjoy it unhindered for all of eternity. That's what He's paving the way for here in Revelation. It's telling us what God's love is like. And it's interesting that the most common and understandable metaphor that God chooses the only wise and holy God, the metaphor that He chooses is marriage. God's love is like a marriage. Now, for those of us in this room who are married, that may not sound like the greatest metaphor. Maybe marriage has been difficult or challenging. Maybe some of our marriages have ended. We never thought that they would. But God says that His love for us It's like a good marriage, a mutually beneficial, sacrificial marriage, and that it's going to be enjoyed like a marriage feast, like a marriage celebration. Again, John is using what is vivid imagery to give us this symbolic idea of what our relationship with God is like throughout time. And the metaphor here is supposed to be, the reason I think God chooses marriage is because it's one that is timeless. It's one whether you have a good marriage or bad marriage or you haven't been married. You can, begin, you can imagine what he means when he says his love is like a marriage. One of the most powerful illustrations of God's love in all of the scriptures is about a marriage. We talked about it last week. It's Hosea, God's prophet meant to speak words of truth, to call God's people back to repentance. And he says, go and marry a prostitute named Gomer who will cheat on you and have children with other men. It'll be the worst marriage ever. But go and experience that relationship so my people can see what my relationship with them has been like. That I have relentlessly pursued them. And he doesn't tell Hosea to divorce Gomer or to renounce her or to shame her. He tells, her to risk, he tells him to risk his very life to go and purchase her back and all of her nakedness as she's being sold as a sex slave, to go and purchase her back and to not just purchase her back and say, now, if you learned your lesson, go home and do your job. He purchases her back. He covers her nakedness with his cloak and he invites her to come back home and to be his wife again, to restore her into a right relationship with himself. Because that is the picture of what Jesus has done for us. He has covered our shame. He has not shamed us. He has removed our shame. And He calls us back home. He doesn't just say, fine, I'll do relationship with you. We'll make this work. He says, come home and heal and rest and find your place. We've talked about this a lot at Flyrock. That's the deepest longing of every human soul. 
everything we're searching for, everything we're acquiring, everything we want, from alcohol to vacations to sports to homes to neighborhoods, it's all a desire for home. The deepest basis level, it's a desire for rest and peace. And the climax of Hosea uh, chapter 2 is in Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, where God says this. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. Because that's the perfect marriage. One where things are right. Where you stand for what is just and good and you fight for justice and truth. Where there's mercy shown and grace. He says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know me, the Lord. He wants us to know Him. He doesn't want, us to, he doesn't want to just rule over our lives and us just acknowledge that He is God. He wants to know us and dwell with us. And Revelation 19 saying, is saying He is going to come through on all of those promises perfectly. Isaiah 54.5 says, For your God, your Maker, is your husband. Why does God want to relate to us that way? Why does He choose that metaphor? This past week, I was in Dallas at General Assembly, and it was, I thought personally, it was, it was at the Hilton Anatole. Has anyone ever been to this hotel in Dallas? It's like the Opryland of Dallas. It's this huge resort and beautiful pools and statues and fitness centers and spas and restaurants, and it's just glorious. You don't even have to leave the place. And I was really excited to be there. Um, I didn't have my kids. And uh, it was a time to just kind of get away and, and rest a little bit. But we had to do business, the business of the church, which is what we're supposed to do. But I found myself really drawn to the pool <laughs> and the restaurants and fighting this battle of, I know I'm supposed to go sit in there and vote on things and listen to the business church, but man, I really, this is good. <laughs> and so I found myself one day, having exited uh, the, the floor of Presbytery a little early, and uh, I found myself sitting out by the pool and I decided, you know, this is a good place. I hadn't, re- I hadn't finished my sermon. This is a good place to finish my sermon. And before long, I found myself sitting shirtless, working on my sermon. And I realized, I, I thought to myself, this is the first sermon I've ever written without my, without my shirt on. <laughs> so I want you to know that I wrote this sermon with my shirt off. And I was gloriously enjoying the man-made creation that was this, you know, this fantastic pool and its waterfalls and lazy rivers and all of this kind of thing. And as I was sitting there, I also realized if I stay here too long, I'm not going to get any business done. I'm not going to do my job as a pastor and I'm going to get really lazy and complacent. And I thought to myself, you know what? I can't even enjoy this for what it is because it's always threatened by sin. It's always threatened by my flesh. It's always going to be over-desired to the point of making it sinful. And you have to go back to your real life and you realize that if you stay there, you're going to become really lazy. The moments of rest and peace don't last, but they do resonate within us because it's what we were meant for. And it's only that, that sitting out by the pool, writing my sermon, spending time with the Lord, it's only just this tiny, tiny glimpse of the paradise that we're headed for. 
That's what this image is supposed to teach us. It's meant to assure us that our deepest longings will be perfectly satisfied one day in a reality without sin to threaten. That's why God is so committed to systematically destroying every inch of evil forever. He's not just tidying things up. He's going to completely renovate it all together. And John is given a vision of what that reality will look like, and the vision he's given that we can all comprehend and imagine is one of a wedding celebration and feast. God is planning a wedding that every wedding throughout history anticipates. And there's three aspects of this wedding feast that I want to focus on. An announcement, the announcement, the attire, and the assurance that this gives us. First, the announcement. If you look with me at verses 6 through 7, John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. So thousands upon thousands of people. You think about the loudest stadium you've ever been to and people cheering for your favorite team and how it can become deafening. That's the sound that John hears. This is how God wants to announce His groom, Jesus, coming in to be married to His bride, the church. like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And they're crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. I think to really understand this, you have to understand how ancient weddings worked because it's framed by that, how these weddings worked. It worked very differently than ours. a much bigger deal than our modern-day weddings that, you know, typically last about 24 hours, and then the couple goes on their honeymoon, and it's over. Well, these feasts were meant to last seven days. People just reveled in the fact that they got to take time to enjoy this couple and to feast with them and dine with them and celebrate and dance and sing. It was a massive party, far beyond anything that probably any of us have ever been to. The parents would also choose the bride for their son. Now that to us seems just kind of like unimaginable. Like that's really unfair. But this is still done in a lot of cultures today. As children are raised to trust their parents, they have more life experience, they have wisdom, and that maybe they have a better perspective on who they should spend their life with than they do. So they would pick the spouse for their son. Marriage terms would be negotiated, who gets what, and where they're going to live, and all of this kind of stuff and how the families are going to relate to each other. And then those announcements were made to the entire village so everyone could know that these people were getting married and the entire village could support these people because they would get married in community, which is also very hard for us to imagine. We're just trying to do life on our own, make things work as best we can between husband and wife. And we don't think about, we think about the village it takes to raise children. We don't typically think about the village it takes to do marriage. That's why we need the church. That's why we need community. Then the couple would be legally married, and this is very different from us too. Then they would have a period of engagement. And that period of engagement would last about a year. But they knew they were going to get married. They knew they were already legally married, but they were going to have this ceremony to celebrate it as the husband would go off and prepare a place for his bride and prepare the home. And then he would come back, and as he came back in to take his wife to be with him, there would be this great announcement of his arrival. And he would get his bride and they would go and they would feast together and they would consummate the marriage. 
And this wedding would take the form of this processional. We read about the, the parable of the ten virgins. People would light their lamps. You know, the reason that parable is used, it's not promoting polygamy. Um, it's using because it's saying it's being used, and it's called it's the parable of the ten virgins of multiple virgins. Because saying it's talking about God's relationship to the church of multiple people. That his bride is made up of a plurality of people of every nation, tongue, and tribe. And that there are some people who think that they're in and think that they're ready for that, and they're not. They're ill-equipped. They're not prepared. And there's some that are. This is used as the main metaphor for God's relationship with His people because it's the clearest picture of how He relates to us and rescues us. Remember, it's God who instituted marriage. It's considered an everlasting covenant between a man and a woman that's meant to last for life through good and bad. It's not meant to be a circumstantial relationship based on how you feel. God doesn't establish a relationship with His church based on how He feels. Now, does He feel for us? Does He love us? Does He feel joy and pleasure in being in a relationship with us? Yes, but, he, but those feelings do not determine whether or not He stays in the relationship. And that is totally backwards in our culture. We make decisions based on how people make us feel. And when you start making me feel a certain way, we're not sure if the relationship is legitimate anymore because it's not giving me what I need. The God of Christianity says, I relate to you not based on how I feel, but based upon a covenant promise, an eternal commitment, that whether I'm liking you or not liking you, I'm not going anywhere. And marriage, our human marriage, is meant to reflect that same kind of relationship so that That marriage is not based circumstantially on how you feel, but on a covenant promise that you make to each other. For better or for worse, we all know the vow. But the problem is we live in a culture where it's about how I feel and what I'm getting and not about putting the needs of another above their own, as God did because we didn't deserve to be married to Him. In fact, He knew we wouldn't even be a good spouse, that we would be unfaithful, and yet He committed Himself to us. The gospel is this. In Christ, the bride was chosen from all eternity before the foundation of the worlds were set. Throughout the Old Testament, the wedding is announced as early as Genesis 3. I'm going to be your husband. I'm going to be the one who crushes evil so that I can have a right relationship with you, to restore you to right relationship with, my, with myself. The son betroths himself to his bride, the church, by taking on flesh and giving his life for her. That's his dowry. That's his down payment. His very life, his very blood. He then goes to prepare a place for us to dwell. That is the point we are in in the story. We wait. But we wait with the promise that he will come back and that he will be with us. That's the the story of Christianity. That's the hope of every Christian. And when he comes back, there will be this, Revelation 19, verse 6 through 10, a celebration unlike any other, a feast that every feast anticipates. And this here in 19 is the announcement that the groom is near and he's coming and we need to prepare ourselves for it. So the natural question is, as we talked about in confession, are you prepared? If Jesus came back today, Are you ready for this? Do you long for that? Does every disappointment and every sadness you experience prick a part of your heart that longs for Jesus to return? Do you pray that? Do you find yourself asking for that? 
because we're meant to. Ask yourself, does this church prepare you for that? Whatever church you're involved in, is it preparing you for this? Sadly, I think many of us don't wait well, including me. I'm so tired of waiting that I just want to care for myself. One of, one of my pastor friends, was, he heard about you know, me writing my sermon. He's like, you do self-care really well. And I was like, well, I appreciate that, I think. But I think maybe I over-desire self-care sometimes because I'm, I'm tired of waiting on God's promises to be fulfilled. I'm not patient with that. And so I want to fulfill them myself. I want to make it work for me now. And we're like those five virgins who didn't bring enough oil with them to light their lamps and didn't have the proper attire and were left out of the feast. We're meant to wait in obedience. And sadly, many of us feel entitled to Jesus as Savior. We can see how He would save us, but we're not willing to submit to Him as Lord in obedience. And if we're not ready, then we have no assurance that this is the reality that we are waiting on, that we will be in this place. Do you know that you will be in this place, that the reality of Revelation 19 will be true for you? Where are you on that spectrum of assurance? How do we wait? Well, well, look at the disciples. They gave us a great example at the very beginning. As soon as Jesus ascended into heaven, what did they do at first? They were left waiting, staring up in heaven. Okay. When are you coming back? What was that? What do we do now? You're gone. Our leader's gone. And the angel comes down to them and he says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You know what's crazy? It's not real complicated what they did in response to that. It's actually really beautiful and simple. They went back into a room and they committed themselves to prayer, to the word being preached, to charity and hospitality to their neighbors, to fasting and spiritual disciplines, to worship. The means of grace is what it's called. That's how we wait well. Don't overcomplicate it. You don't have to, waiting well is not you go clean up all of your life so you don't sin anymore and so you got everything in order so that you're, you know, you're living as well as you can. That's not the point. The point is to go from here and commit, to your, commit yourselves to loving what God loves and hating what He hates. And we do that through His Word. We do that through the sacraments. We do that through worship. We do that through prayer. So that's the announcement. Next, look at the attire. We're told what the attire, the attire is for the wedding. It says, fine linen, bright and pure. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So she didn't deserve it. But God shows His favor in allowing her to wear these beautiful garments. Jesus gave His very life for, because He loved the church so much. He died for the church, and He purchased a righteousness called double imputation. He receives our sin, and we who do not deserve anything else, still by His grace, get His righteousness. And what, is, what did Jesus get who deserved everything? He got our sin. That's the great hope of Christianity. He did that by His grace and on His own initiative. And He grants this to us. You know, back then the king, if it was a royal wedding, the king would actually buy garments for everyone. 
he would buy all the clothes for everyone in the wedding. And Jesus is saying, I will clothe you in the righteousness of my own work. And this wedding here will be the royalist of all weddings. Again, every, even, even the best, most extravagant royal wedding anticipates this wedding. It says, these fine linens that are bright and pure represent the deeds of the saints. They are purchased by good works. They're extravagant and expensive. They fit perfectly and they look great. And the only way that they can be purchased are through good works. Do you have enough good works to purchase this, to create this reality for yourself? No. Our bad works far outseed our good, and our good, as the Scriptures tell us, are still just filthy rags. But it is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ that the good works are, are His good works credit our accounts with an inexhaustible amount of money, clothing us in the righteousness of His good works. That's how we are seen in the eyes of God. And that's how we will be presented as the bride when we show up. One of the nicest weddings um, I've ever been to was in South Dakota, uh, and it was in the middle of a prairie field um, with nothing within miles around it at this 200-year-old Methodist church that was built by hand out of stone as they rolled rocks down a hill and slowly built it. And I was flown to the wedding as the one who officiated it, and there was an, a tent set up and an extravagant party and reception. And I found myself in an interesting situation as we were all celebrating, we were all just bragging on, on the couple and the, the, the father who provided all of this for us, this beautiful, beautiful reception, dancing and singing and drinks provided and food, and they had to drive it in in, in trucks and bring it all in and set it all up, how much time and effort and energy and money it took. And you found yourself sitting around the table discussing how much you thought the wedding costs. What do you think he spent on this? 200000 500000 I can't imagine how much this would have cost. It was far too extravagant. And this wedding feast that John describes here, it is the costliest of all weddings. But we know how this one's paid for, don't we? It's paid for with something far more extravagant than money. And currency. It's paid by the blood of Jesus Christ to provide for us a wedding unlike any other, a feast unlike any other. And we have assurance that this will be, because I love that it says, presents this great reality, and it's, the angel says to me, write this. This is worthy of being recorded in the Scriptures. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, these are the true words of God. And John is so overcome by this reality and this truth that what does he do? He falls at his feet and begins to worship the angel. And the angel's quick to tell him, it's not about me. I'm, I'm just the messenger. Worship the one who's providing this for you. The one who says this is true and can be trusted forever. Do you believe that this morning? 
The hope of all Christians is timeless. It's never changed. It's submitted in God's eternal word. It is the conclusion and goal of God's love letter to his people. It can be, tr be trusted because it is, has endured. That hope has never changed. Does the hope of this vision order your life and your commitments? Does it affect how you live? The decisions you make? It's meant to. It says, blessed are those who have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What that means is, in this moment, we can't ever fully experience the favor of God in this life like we're meant to. And he's saying there will be a reality when you will sit at that table and you will see people from every nation, tongue, and tribe, and you will see the, the equity, the hospitality, the charity of God poured out upon His people, and you will fully experience the favor of God in a way that you never have before, without a doubt you will know that God not only loves you, but He deeply likes you. He's deeply affectionate for you. And you will, that's what you will rest in. That's what will give you that sense of home, that you are where you're supposed to be, and you're in relationship with who you're supposed to be in relationship with. And you get to experience it for eternity. I'll close with this. Anybody ever heard of the name Will Novak? Will Novak, Anybody? About six months ago, an email flashed across Will Novak's screen, and it uh, was a subject line that said, Angelo's Bachelor Party. And the problem was that Will Novak, this Will Novak, didn't know anyone named Angelo, because the email that was sent to him, a letter or a period was wrong. And so it went to the wrong Will Novak. And the email that originated someplace in New York was sent to a Will Novak in Arizona. The invitation was to an 80s-themed ski weekend in Vermont, a bachelor party. And this Will Novak, who received the email, almost deleted it, but felt this impulsive sense to respond. And this was his response. All... I do not know who Angelo is. I am Will Novak, who lives in Arizona. Vermont seems like a very far-off place to travel for a bachelor party of a guy I've never met. That being said, count me in. <laughs> he used an expletive in there that I won't say. He went on to say in his email, he'd only been skiing one time in his life, and so he wasn't going to be much help in the ski department, but he had a Nintendo Switch and some Sudoku puzzles that he would be happy to bring if Angelo's style was for games in the cabin at the Opry Ski afterwards. He said that that's not amendable. He totally gets it, but he still wanted to be there to support his man, Angelo. <laughs> and the senders thought that this was so hilarious that they actually decided to take him up on it and said, come on, we'll know back who we've never met from Arizona. That email would go viral. It would inspire a mass of people to meet them at the airport and to even provide Maseratis for them to drive around the whole week, weekend of the bachelor party. They asked Will, this perfect stranger, send us a picture so we at least know what you look like and so we know you're not some creep. Do you know what Will Novak sent them back? A picture of him doing karate in the second grade. <laughs> that became the official bachelor party t-shirt. So when he showed up at the airport, everyone was wearing the t-shirt of him doing karate in the second grade. It cost $750 to get to Vermont. 
Will Novak didn't have that kind of money, so he started to go fund me to raise money to get there. Do you know how long it took him to raise $750? Two hours. He actually ended up raising $2,800. And this Will Novak is such an awesome guy, which we've clearly established already, that he said, I'm actually going to just use the money I need for it to get there, and then I'm going to take the extra funds because Angelo is uh, getting married. He's probably going to have kids, and so I'm going to donate the rest of the funds to be able to support him when he has a child. Why did I tell you that story? One, it's amazing. Two, it's inspiring. And three, Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is inviting you to the table. He's inviting you. He doesn't just say, come and have a relationship. He says, come and dine with me. Why does the God of the universe say that? Because he is a God of hospitality, he is a God of charity, and he wants to dine with us in eternity. He wants this celebration with us, and the invitation has been extended, and you are not some accidental recipient. And this is a wedding you can't afford to get to, but all your expenses have been paid. You don't need a GoFundMe to get there. Your expenses have been paid in blood, and you receive it by faith. And that's what we celebrate, that he's credited our account with an unlimited amount of funds to get us to this reality, this reality that this table here, this small wooden table in the middle of an elementary school represents a tiny glimpse of that feast. We practice this every week because we are, are anticipating what this table represents and hopes for, which is this greater feast. Let's pray.